Jonah was a man on the run from God's presence and God's plan. And maybe you have found yourself on that same trajectory. But the good news is the children of God will never outrun the mercy of God. As we explore the Old Testament book of Jonah together, we will be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord and we will rejoice in the relentless mercy of God. This content is provided by Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, we saw that as one of the final lines in Jonah's prayer at the end of chapter 2. Salvation belongs to the Lord, the last five words of Jonah 2, verse 9. And it does. It belongs to him. He is the one who works uh, for the salvation of his people. So it shouldn't surprise us stories like this, but yet I find them surprising every time I read them. This one comes from 1859, and there's more stories like this out there, but this is during the second evangelical awakening in, in Northern Ireland. There was a boy who was at school and he was acting so distraught that the teacher kindly sent him home with his older brother. The boy was under deep conviction of sin. And on the way home, his brother, who was a believer, spotted an empty house and suggested they go inside to pray. That's creepy, but I guess in the 1800s maybe it wasn't. So they go into this empty house to pray, and there in that house, the younger brother prayed to trust Christ, finished work on the cross, and be saved from his sin. Immediately, he was ready to return to school. And upon walking back into the schoolhouse, he blurted out to his teacher, I am so happy. I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. That's all he said. Nothing slick, nothing fancy. That's it. That's all he said. And then, one by one, Boy after boy, girl after girl in that classroom began to stand up and exit the schoolhouse and make their way out to the yard. Some of them weeping as they went and all of them kneeling and praying. And it just kept, ha kept happening. As boys and girls, students and even teachers alike were saved that day. The story goes that clergymen were called in from all around that surrounding area and that it went on like this until 11 p.m. that night that's revival that's what is the biblical definition of that word revival now we that word's loaded especially in Appalachia right a revival something that you put on the calendar you bring in a guest speaker and you meet every night that week maybe even in a tent um, and then and then that's revival and there's nothing wrong with those times. But that's not revival in the biblical sense. You can't schedule revival. It comes when God wants it to come. And it often comes when we don't expect it to. We don't expect it to, to come in some countryside schoolhouse because some little boy came to faith in Christ because of his brother, Right? does they wouldn't have expected it to come there it, it, we wouldn't expect it to come today if we looked around at our if you watch the news 
If you look around you in society today, it wouldn't be a time that we would expect revival to come. And no one would have expected it to come in Nineveh in Jonah's time either. But it comes when God is beneath the surface working, and he always is, and when he brings revival, there's no stopping. When the waves of revival come crashing down, the relentless mercy of God brings restoration, repentance, and redemption. That's what we're going to see in chapter 3 today. That'll be proven out in this story, this true story from Jonah chapter 3. And my prayer is that we will be left yearning for that personally. God will do a work of revival in our own personal lives that leads to restoration and repentance and redemption. And then he'll do it beyond this place. He'll do it in this room for us. And he'll do it beyond this place. So, Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Verses 1 through 3, we'll see that true revival brings restoration. True revival brings restoration. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, now stop, there's good news there. There's something worth celebrating there. And it's found in the words, a second time. We could go around this room and testify. That's what they do in the old, maybe, Baptist churches. Maybe one day we'll schedule an evening gathering. We'll just pass the mic around. After COVID, of course. (laughs) And testify to what God has done in our lives. We serve a God who brings restoration to his people. And it's even better in this context, and, and, if, and if you've lived long enough, you understand that this is true, that sometimes restoration comes be- between failures. It does for Jonah. He's going to mess it up again in chapter 4, spoiler alert. And he's messed it up really bad in chapter 1, and yet... In between, our God, knowing our past and knowing our future, knowing the failings behind us and the failings in front of us, restores his children. Good news today, because some of us, after multiple failings, start to think that God has given up on us. But he hasn't. Do you hear me? He hasn't. He's a God of restoration. And that's more than second chances, too. We say that our God is a God of second chances, and and that's not entirely false. It's a true statement, but it's not as robust as what restoration is. Second chances are good. But God doesn't just give us second chances in the sense that, like, we mess up, and he says, okay, I'll let you try again. No, it's an active restoration. You see, second chances can carry with it a wide range of understanding when you talk about them. Some people can think of second chances in a very passive way. Oh, we'll let you try again. I ain't got anything better to do. You go ahead and try again. But restoration is fully involved. Restoration walks with you, lifts you up, equips you, enables you. It brings you back. And our God is a God of 
of restoration. And he's restoring Jonah. Verse 2, we read, Arise, this is God speaking to Jonah a second time. And by the way, in the ESV, and in most translations, probably holds true. But the first 12 words of chapter 3, verse 2, are the exact same 12 words of chapter 1, verse 2. Again, reiterating that God is bringing restoration. He hasn't given up on Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. God hands Jonah the map again to Nineveh. He hands him the megaphone again. He gives him the message again. He restores him and says, go. Our God is a God of restoration. Remember who led the people of God out of Egypt? It was a murderer. Did you know that? Remember that? He tried to bring about the exodus himself. Killed that Egyptian, Moses. And then he had to flee out of the country. And he's in the wilderness herding sheep. When God comes to him in the burning bush and says, I'm going to restore you. Let's do this again. And he leads the people of God out of Egypt. He's restored. You remember that, that, that man, Peter, the disciple, the follower of Jesus? <laughs> He's on the beach next to the Sea of Galilee at a little fish fry that, that Jesus has prepared for him and for the disciples. He'd walked on water, Peter had, on that same sea. Remember his faith so high, right, until he doubted, that he had stepped out on the water in that storm and walked to Jesus. But now the closest thing in his rearview mirror was denial of Jesus. Three times he denied. And there, I love that story of my life. I'm glad Jesus operates that way. I'm glad our God is one who is patient and restoring because he welcomes Peter back. And what's Peter do very, very soon after that? He preaches that very first sermon at Pentecost of this newly forming church that God's been building forever or building for forever, but now is is throwing onto the scene in massive form. Peter preaches that sermon and 3,000 people are saved. Our God restores. Jonah was a prophet. He spoke for the Lord and and then he bucked against God's word and God's way. And he's going to do it again. But in chapter 3, he's restored. And so we're left. How's he going to respond? God comes to him again, and and we read. Right in verse uh, 3 of chapter 1, we read, But Jonah rose to flee. In verse 3 of chapter 3, we read, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He goes. According to the word of the Lord, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah responds, and we sigh a sigh of relief. Well, it's about time. You got it right, Jonah. We're all sitting here forgetting that we're Jonah in this story. That, that sometimes we don't even get it right on the second time. Sometimes it takes third, fifth, tenth, twentieth time. Jonah, Jonah gets it the second time. He's restored and he goes. He goes to, to, to preach. So true revival brings restoration. In verses 4 through 9, we're going to see that true revival brings 
repentance. But before we move there, I want to make a distinction here. Not a distinction, but it is kind of a distinction of, of what revival looks like. Because we've already seen revival in Jonah. Right? We're about to see it on this massive corporate level. But we've already seen it happen in the belly of that fish. Personal revival. So there's personal revival, and then sometimes, like in that story we read in the introduction, there's a more corporate, broad revival where where an, an abnormal amount of people are responding to the gospel, are being transformed by the gospel in waves. The Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the prayer revival, and then if you go out globally, you can find revivals in different pockets of the world that God has poured out. Corporately, broadly. But personal revival happens all the time. Thank God that it does. That God steps in in times when we've become disenchanted, we've become apathetic, and he restores that fervor, that fire, that desire that we have for the things of God. You can have personal revival and not have corporate revival. But it can't go the other way. You can't have corporate revival without personal revival. And so God's plan is to bring personal revival to Jonah in the fish before he brings corporate revival to Nineveh in that great city. And he'll use us in the same way. Our God is a God who restores. So if you find yourself today in a place of being apathetic, place of deep need of maybe personal revival, we have a God who, who does that for his children. Here's a prayer I would suggest you pray. Lamentations 5.21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, bring us back close to yourself, that we may be restored, renew our days as of old. But so many conversations with people who just say, it doesn't mean what it used to mean to me, to walk with Jesus. The Bible's not alive to me like it used to be. Prayer doesn't, doesn't speak to me like it used to. You know who I've had that conversation with the most? Myself. But our God restores. He brings us back. And so that restoration is part of revival. Verses 4 through 9, repentance is part of revival. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city Going a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's his sermon. Some of you are like, I wish that was your sermon. Well, too bad. <laughs> Even if that was the cliff notes for the sermon, that's still a pretty short sermon. If that was 10% of the sermon, that's still a pretty short sermon. And it isn't slick. It isn't tricked out. It's not even going to have like all this alliteration that this cheesy man is going to try to lay out in this sermon. He just says what God told him to say. And here's the point that we need to, to understand. The simple message of the gospel does not need improved upon. I don't need to get better at sharing the gospel before I start proclaiming it. If Jonah can preach the sermon he preached, and you'll see the results, many of you know them because you know the story already, and we can remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's about speaking the message, not about your skills or your talents in speaking the message. The message is simple, just speak it. But more importantly, God is after Jonah's heart, 
and he's got it. That matters more than, than how you formulate the message of the gospel when you speak it to somebody. A lot of us get held up. We're not going to speak the gospel because what if they ask this or what if they say that? And we want to have it all, all our ducks in a row. What needs to happen first really is for, is for Jesus to have your heart. John Owen says this, the word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. The word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. And it was for Jonah coming with power to his heart and it'll be poured out in power in Nineveh, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The response was that they believed. And they didn't believe Jonah, by the way. They believed God. There was something about his message that, that made them look past Jonah to God. There's another nugget to understand as we proclaim the truth about who God is. That it's not about us. It's about God. Sometimes the best thing we can do is be less distracting and just preach it simply, teach it simply, share it simply. So they believed God. And what's interesting here, if you were a, a Hebrew boy and you were reading this story in Hebrew, you would have came to a very interesting word when you read the word that we translate believe. I'm going to butcher it. They wouldn't have. I'm glad none of those Hebrew boys are here today. Alif Mem Noon, right? That's how Appalachian says it. That's the word. It showed up somewhere before. The first place those Hebrew boys would have read it is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when a man named Abraham was told that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. But his wife was barren. When he said that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed, but his wife was barren. But in chapter 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed God. Aleph Mem Noon. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when the Hebrew boy would have come to that, he would have seen layers upon layers upon layers of God's goodness. That God was going to give the same opportunity to the nations that he had given to his nation, the nation of Israel. That God was fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And he was doing it in Nineveh. They believed and it was counted to them as righteousness. God is growing the family of Abraham, not just through natural birth, but through faith. We're going to be in Galatians later this year, and, and Paul is going to lay out that argument, I think in chapter 3, that the sons of Abraham are some by natural birth, but all of them by faith in Christ. And this faith reveals itself in repentance. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They repent of their sin. They realized that the pathway that they were on was the wrong pathway and they turned to the pathway that God is calling them to. Repentance, turning away from something and turning to something. They've got 40 days though, right? Why not wait till day 35? 
day 36, right? I do that all the time, right? Like it's almost New Year's Day, and I know I'm going to start trying to diet on New Year's Day, so I eat like an absolute idiot in the week leading up to New Year's Day. Faith, they're believing what God says is true. And if what God says is true and the pathway they're on is a destination to destruction and the path of, that God has for them is a pathway to life and joy and satisfaction, then why waste another day on the road to destruction? And I would say to us, to myself, to each of you, don't waste another day on any road but the Calvary road of Christ. Take up your cross and follow him, even if it's been weeks and weeks since you've done it. Turn today. There's no need to wait. In faith, repent. Don't waste it. And call those around you to repent, right? Like, that's what's happening here. Jonah wasn't loud enough that everybody heard him. I guarantee it. He speaks in this town square, wherever he finds himself. But it spreads from there. Jonah doesn't individually speak to everyone. It's a community project. It it spans out. And for for revival to come, for repentance to spread, we must be calling others to it. Right? Not in in the hacking Baptist preacher way, right? Like, like you're all going to go to H-E-double hockey sticks if you don't get right with God, right? Like that sort of thing. But at the same time, not being so passive... That we ignore the fact that those around us, including ourselves, must take ownership of our brokenness, must take ownership of our sin. It begins there in repentance. So we must find a way to lovingly, gently, mercifully call those around us to repentance. Watch what happens. Verses 6 through 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Good luck, by the way. Right? Like you think that dressing up your animals is a new trend. This was, you have the king of Nineveh to thank for that. He's like, let's, let's make some, some sackcloth robes for our uh, animals as well. We'll get them in that. But at the same time, don't let them eat. Oh, gosh. Anyway, if you're a pet owner, you know how ridiculous that is. But they, that's the goal. They're covered in sackcloth. And, and let them, let all of us as collectively, as a people of Nineveh, call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. And from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Our God is relentless in his mercy. And here, citywide revival pours out on Nineveh. Just like at that schoolhouse, right? Where unexplicably, right? And unexpectedly, child after child begins to repent of their sin and and come to faith in Christ, it spreads like wildfire through Nineveh, this massive city. There was no strategy for it, by the way. Like, Like 
Jonah actually, if you haven't caught on yet, did not want this to happen. He would have had like an anti-strategy. He might have been whispering this message even. I mean, if you know anything about Jonah's personality, he might have 40 days, 40 days. He didn't want Nineveh to experience salvation. There was no strategy, no plan. This was the work of God. And watch, it, it goes from the bottom up, by the way. Now, there's scholars that agree with that or disagree with that. There's scholars that seem to think that somehow the king heard this first, and I don't see it in the text. I don't know how they get that. And then he made that proclamation, and that's how it got citywide. I don't think so. It happened in the streets, and it moved up to where the king was. Now, maybe as that was surging forward, the complete adoption of it happened as it came to the king, and he made this proclamation. That was a part of the spread. But the encouraging news is revival can start right now regardless of what the politicians are doing. Revival can start right now regardless of what the celebrities are doing. Revival can happen right now from the bottom up. If the people of God will turn to God, repent of their sins and follow after him, God can pour out revival however he wishes. Revival causes you to turn away from things. And it causes you to turn to things. They turn away from their violence and evil. And they turn to call out mightily to God. That is revival, by the way. Turning away from and turning to the mighty God. And lastly, their revival is rooted in hope. And it ain't a whole lot of hope. But it's enough. Verse 9. Who knows, right? Yeah, maybe. That's the amount of hope they have. Uh, 50-50 chance, maybe, 60-40, 70-30. Better stop doing math while I'm ahead. <laughs> Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God will use who knows levels of hope. God will use, ah, it doesn't seem like it'll happen, but maybe he'll use that amount of hope. He'll use a mustard seed size of faith to accomplish great and powerful things. So here it comes. Revival pours out. Nineveh. True revival brings restoration. And true revival brings repentance. And lastly, true revival brings redemption. Here's what happens. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Our God is relentless in his mercy, but he is relenting in his wrath. Our God will relent from his wrath, but he will never relent from his mercy. That matters today. There's hope in that for the children of God. There's hope in that for the people of God. There's also a doctrine and theology question here. Maybe y'all don't want to go there, but we're going to. Someone ra- could, could raise their hand and say, did, did God just change his mind? What about uh, Numbers 23, verse 19, which says this, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, oh, let me show it to you guys. There you go. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? But God didn't change his mind. 
God doesn't lie. What, what happened there in verse 10? Two things real quick, just to help us wrap our brain around. This is important that we, we recognize this type of stuff when we see it in the, the Bible. Point one would be that under, is understanding the way the Bible talks about God. John Calvin has this, I didn't even put it up here. John Calvin has this quote where he says, God t- talks to us in baby talk. Now what he means is, oftentimes you'll find verses like verse 10 that give big word anthropomorphic, right? Human-like traits are given to God, a divine being who cannot be fully defined in human terms. So he's spoken of in human terms so that knuckleheads like me can understand who he is. But it doesn't hold up completely. So you have to go to the context of Scripture to understand what God is doing here. This isn't a God who flip-flops his position. Look closer. In Hebrew, the word for evil in this verse, and the word for, let's go back to verse 10, the word for evil and the word for disaster is the same. Raw. Like raw, 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 like raw. So the verse could read, and when God saw what they did, how they turned from their raw way, God relented of the raw that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, when they relented from the pathway to disaster, God relented from the destination of disaster. When they changed the GPS coordinates from their way to God's way, they went from a pathway to destruction to a pathway to redemption. God's always worked that way, by the way. Always worked that way. Human repenting has always equaled divine relenting. That's how God works every single time. And he's not being unfaithful here. He's being faithful to who he is. He's keeping the promise that when human repentance comes, divine relenting comes. Hugh Martin says it like this. It was wicked, violent, unrighteous, proud Nineveh which God had threatened to destroy. A city sitting in sackcloth and ashes, humbled in the depths of self-abasement and appealing as lowly suppliants to his commiseration, and Nineveh like that, that Nineveh he had never threatened. That Nineveh he visited not with ruin. He had never said that he would. Do you see it? God didn't change. God is operating in complete faithfulness to who he is when he does this. But we're reading about it in human terms, and we could have a question. Did God flip-flop? Did God change his mind? No, God stayed who he was. You know who flip-flopped? The Ninevites. And it's a good thing they did. Because when they did, they realized that human repenting brings divine relenting. God's promise was to destroy a sinning Nineveh, not a repenting Nineveh. So our God is relentless in his mercy. And when he pours out revival, it brings restoration, and it brings repentance, and it brings redemption. But just how relentless is he? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's where we're going to close. Jesus shows us how relentless he is for the redemption of his people. How relentless he is for revival amongst his people. But our answer starts with a justice issue. We have to take ownership of this justice issue in Nineveh. We've got a problem. 
Did they repent? Yes. Do they have a, quite a backstory, quite a rap sheet? Yes. What about that? What about all that? Who gets punished for all that? Who's going to absorb the wrath of God for all that past sin? Is God just going to sweep it under the rug of heaven? Say, ah, it's all right, whatever. That's not just. That's unjust. He can't just sweep it under the rug. So who's going to pay for it? They've got a debt, quite frankly, that they can't pay. Even with the repentance and the sackcloth and the ashes, they have not bought for themselves redemption. They can't pay the debt. You can't pay your debt. I can't pay my debt. Not Jonah couldn't pay his debt. So who's going to pay it? You know, Jesus. Now in real time, it was getting put on his tab for the future. But now, on this side of the cross, we're able to look back and see the infinite payment that was made on behalf of sinners like the Ninevites and sinners like Jonah and sinners like me. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. The Ninevites couldn't keep the law. They, they didn't even have the law, most of them even access to it. They couldn't keep it. Jonah couldn't keep it. You can't keep it. I can't keep it. So we need righteousness apart from the law. And the law and the prophets bore witness to what was coming. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we need. The law fails to save us because we fail to keep the law. We need Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. Sinners in Nineveh, sinners in this room, sinners in the bellies of fishes, need this gospel. We need grace and we need mercy. And God gives it to us through Jesus. Verse 25. Whom Jesus God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Get this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance with the Ninevites and his divine forbearance with Jonah in his divine forbearance with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and on and on the list could go, he had passed over former sins. The, just, the, the, the justification that comes for the Ninevites was bought by Jesus in the future. And the justification that is given to us today was bought for us in the past, but it was bought at the same place by the same Son of God, Jesus, on the cross. So that we can have redemption through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And Ninevites might not have known exactly how that was going to go down, but they had faith that it could happen. And they believed. And it was counted to them as righteousness. Because of Jesus, the better Jonah, who went the first time, not the second time, Jesus the better Jonah, who walked through the city as well, but for him, he had a cross on his back. Jesus, the better Jonah, who called sinners to repent, just like Jonah did, but he would actually pay the cost so that the repentance could be met with redemption. Final sacrifice. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be 
both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Love and justice meet at the cross. Relentless mercy and justice meet at the cross. Jesus absorbs all the wrath of God against the Ninevites and against you and against me, all the children of God, so that we can receive only mercy, not wrath. So if you're not a Christian today, trust Jesus. He's done the work required to make you right with God, and now what's left for you is repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Just like the Ninevites, past record, eradicated, expunged because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And if you are a Christian, child of God, today there's a lot of takeaways from this chapter that we could go to. We could talk about restoration. Maybe you desire that today. Maybe you're in a place of apathy or or disenchantment or even uh, sin. Our God is a God who restores. Take hope in that. We could talk about proclaiming the gospel and how Jonah does that, you know, simply but boldly and how that God calls us to do the same. But instead, I want us to think about revivals. That's what struck me this week as I came back to this passage over and over and over again. That revival would happen twice. It happened in the life of Jonah and then it happened corporately in Nineveh. As I look around, as I look in the mirror, and as I look around at my community, and as I turn on the news, it seems like the most absolute, unlikely time for there to be revival in my life, there to be revival in our community, there to be revival in our nation. The cliche is it's always darkest before the dawn. I heard somebody else talk about this the other day. You ever been to a marina that's influenced by the tides? And when the tide is out, there's those places where all the boats are just sitting there in the mud and they can't move, nothing can happen, right? I don't think there's very many of those left. There's probably human ways that they've prevented that. But you've maybe seen pictures of those marinas. It's all just sitting in the mud. You can't move it. It's hopeless. But at that point in time, the potential energy is at its highest for the water to return into that mud. What I'm saying, and maybe I'm wrong, but quite possibly we find ourselves now at a point in history, call it post-Christian, call it whatever you want, where God is getting ready to pour out revival. The tide is getting ready to come back in. So my encouragement to myself and you is set your sails for revival. By praying passionately, for a move of God in you and in others and in this church plant. First things first, pray for that. By proclaiming boldly, sharing the gospel with others, preaching the gospel to yourself, proclaiming it to you so you're reminded again and again and again of the truths of of who Jesus is. By repenting regularly. Can we just be those people? who own our sin, right? Who who repent to our spouses and repent to our children and repent to our friends and repent to our parents and repent to those around us and repent to God when we mess up. Let's own it, not hold on to it. And by hoping in Jesus. Hoping in Jesus with steady and calm perseverance 
Ray Ortland, if you're familiar with him, uh, was a pastor in Nashville. He says American Christians, Philippians 4, 5, is still there on the pages of our Bibles. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Publicly obvious reasonableness, fair-mindedness, and restraint declare to our nation how real and present God is. Calm. C-A-L-M. Calm is our prophetic edge. And it is our hope in Jesus that will keep us steady and calm as we set our sails and wait for revival to come in this place. I may be wrong, but I believe revival is coming, and when that revival comes, crashing down the relentless mercy of God will bring with it restoration and repentance and redemption. May it be so. God, bring revival in my heart. Bring revival in the hearts of those who sit here in this place. That you would stir in us a increasing, almost inexplicable how, how uh, passionately and robustly uh, you ignite in us a desire for your word, a desire for prayer, a desire to share the gospel, a desire to know you and walk with you and walk with the people of God to be like Jesus. And through that personal revival, may that spill out into those uh, in the places we live and work and play. And might we see, and even as I pray this, I'm like in the place the Ninevites were. Maybe, who knows? But would you pour out revival in ways that it can only be explained by your relentless mercy? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.